Hello and welcome along to this week's episode of the Total Fertility Podcast, where we explore the minds of experts from all different walks of life. Our aim is to make your fertility journey just that little bit easier. I'm Ed Coates, a consultant gynaecologist, a fertility specialist and co-founder of the website totalfertility.co.uk, where we connect you to all kinds of resources that will inform you, empower you and hopefully help you on that way to finding your own fertility. So this week I wanted to talk about a condition that affects 1 in 10 women and it can lead to really quite distressing symptoms throughout those reproductive years. Endometriosis not only affects the quality of life of women but it also can affect a woman's fertility. And our guest today is an expert in both of these. Ollie O'Donovan is a consultant in Bristol and he's an expert not just in endometriosis but in fertility. So it's a perfect mix I think to help us try and understand a little bit more about how the two of these interact. Now I've known Ollie for a long time, qualified originally at Imperial College uh, School of Medicine in London and then he went on to train in advanced laparoscopic surgery and fertility in both Oxford and London. So Ollie now leads the St Michael's Endometriosis Centre in Bristol and he works as a fertility specialist at the Bristol Centre for Reproductive Medicine. So I'm really looking forward to this episode and I'm really pleased that Ollie's given up some time to, to, to spend talking to us. I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, his thoughts, his unique perspective on it, and I think we're going to learn, learn a lot. So uh, let's get started. Ollie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Ed. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks uh, for giving up time to um, sort of share your thoughts on this really important topic that affects so many women. And I know you've, you'll have your own um, thoughts and experience to sort of bring to this, which is, is the reason for getting you on. Um, can we just start with a really sort of very simple question? Because not everybody will perhaps know that much about endometriosis. Um, you know, we obviously see it in our clinical practice day in, day out. But sure. can you can you start by just sort of talking a little bit about what endometriosis actually is, um, why it takes so long to diagnose, um, and, and how it actually affects women? How would they know that they have it? So, I mean, starting right at the beginning, as you said, endometriosis um, is a common condition. It affects about one in 10 women, as you said in your introduction. Um, it's a condition where tissue or cells which are similar to those in the lining of the womb, um, the endometrium, um, grow outside of the womb and that can happen almost anywhere in the body um, but most commonly it happens in the pelvis so around the uterus, the tubes, ovaries, bowel, ureters which are the tubes which run from the kidney to the bladder um, and yeah as you said it, it, it can be very difficult to diagnose. Um, in terms of diagnosis um, sort of Forever and a day, the gold standard for diagnosis has been a laparoscopy, so keyhole surgery to have a look inside the tummy and see if you can see endometriosis. But of course, you're not going to do that on everybody um, who has you know, heavy or painful periods, which is the sort of classic presenting symptoms of endometriosis. So many people um, have treatments tried um, sort of early on in life, often in the teens, um, things like the pill, other hormones, um, and if they get an improvement in their symptoms, then very often um, the sort of hunt for a diagnosis kind of peters out at that point, and it, and it may not rear its head again until later on in life. And and you know, talking about fertility, very often that is the time at which people start you know wondering about why they're struggling to get pregnant, or there's a delay mm. in getting pregnant, and and it might be at that point where. The, the question mark about endometriosis is 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 um, raised again. 
you're you're right. I mean, it's so off, often that you see patients in their early years, they have painful periods. You might see them in, in clinic and then start them on the contraceptive pill, so something pharmacological to kind of try and help them. Um, and then it's it, it's not until much later that they have a almost light bulb moment that maybe there's a link between the two. Are we are we getting it right? I mean, are, is this something that we should be uh, thinking more about in younger patients? Because as you, as you said in your introduction there as well, the, the the length of time to diagnosis is quite long, um, and it can take a while for us to spot um, that patients actually have this condition. And I mean, I guess this links into my next bit, which is 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 how does it actually form? How how does it get there? And what damage does it do? Why? Why is it such? What, what's actually going on at sort of at the biological level at the sort of in the pelvis to cause the problem? Well, that's the sort of million-dollar question, as you know. Um, the honest truth is, we're not hundred percent sure why endometriosis happens. Um, there's probably several ways in which endometriosis starts. Um, there's various theories. I mean, um, how does it get from? the endometrium, the lining of the womb out into the pelvis was one of the questions that people were asking. And that the oldest probably um, theory about endometriosis is what we call retrograde menstruation, which I guess, you know, in layman's terms means kind of backwards periods, which is where uh, when um, the, the woman's having a period, um, some of the cells from the lining of the womb, which, which should be shed downwards and out through the cervix and out of the vagina and out of the body, um, for whatever reason, go the wrong way and go up through the fallopian tubes and come out mm. of the fallopian tubes into the pelvis and um, and start to grow out there. Um, and almost certainly that does happen in some people. However, um, there are other theories about how endometriosis, um, you know, might develop and it might be uh, to people's called the de novo um, sort of theory which is where for whatever reason some cells in the pelvis or elsewhere in the body decide to turn into uh, endometrial cells into uh, cells like the, those in the lining of the womb and there's what's called a sort of metastasis theory as well which is that somehow these endometrial cells spread through the blood um, and uh, and they find somewhere in the body that they like to grow um, and there's probably an element of truth in all of them. Uh, certainly there have been studies that have suggested that all of them, you know, could be the cause. And I think it's probably, probably all those things, um, in, in different people. And, uh, you know, there've, there've even been studies when, um, they've looked at sort of relatively young fetuses at sort of, uh, sort of 14, 16 weeks. And they've found that there's endometrial cells in the pelvis at that point. So, you know, maybe it starts really very, very on in, wow. um, in, uh, in, you know, human life. Mm. And it, it obviously plays havoc with uh, a woman's quality of life and mm. uh, often presents, as you said there, with painful, heavy bleeding, heavy periods. And, 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 and it can really be really quite distressing for a number of years. Mm. Is it um, in terms of what a woman should do? I mean, many people will have painful periods, but not everybody with painful periods has endometriosis. Mm. What can you do uh, as a young woman or, or someone perhaps trying to conceive who thinks that they may have this? What should they be, what should they be attempting to do um, to try and get to the bottom of it? Well, I mean, I think obviously the first thing to do is to, you know, go and see your GP and ask the question. Um, 
it's a really difficult question and, and I often talk to GPs and, and, uh, and junior doctors and things about endometriosis and, and the one question that keeps coming up is how do we know whether somebody's just got heavy painful periods without endometriosis which is very common or heavy painful periods and endometriosis and so it's a really hard question to answer. I think the sort of the red flag the thing that really jumps out to most people is is if like you've been saying, it's really starting to affect their quality of life. So if somebody says to me, you know, they're missing days of school or days of college or days of work or they're missing out on social life because of their symptoms, because of their pain. At that point, then I think, you know, definitely you need to start thinking about endometriosis. But, you know, if you're worried about endometriosis in any way, then, you know, seeing your GP is a good place to start. Mm. And of course, it can take a long time to diagnose it. And is that is that because... Um, is that because people don't initially present or is it because we're not very good at picking it up? I think it's a combination of things. Um, I think in, in many women, it doesn't really need to be diagnosed. And that might sound like a strange thing to say. Mm. But if, if one in 10 women have endometriosis, which we, we think is the case, or, or some en evidence of endometriosis, then... Uh, you know, we're going to struggle to to diagnose all of them, um, and it, 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 the sort of the sort of pathway that most people get, and we we started talking about it earlier, is that they go to their GP and they present with pain, heavy painful periods, and the GP will quite rightly try some simple solutions for that. So that might be non-hormonal medications, things like tranexamic acid and mefenamic acid, which are medications that tend to make periods lighter and less painful. Um, and simple things for heavy painful periods like like the progesterone only pill or the myrena coil or or the depot injection or one of those mm -hmm. and if that solves the problem then you probably won't investigate much further than that certainly not at that point um, but the reason why it's it's very difficult to um, uh, to diagnose you know is is a slightly historical thing because um, the only way to diagnose in the past has been an operation, a laparoscopy, keyhole surgery, as we said before. But fortunately now, we're getting better at diagnosing endometriosis using imaging techniques, so ultrasound and MRI. So it's not necessary in, in many women to expose them to the risks of, a, of an operation or the inconvenience and the pain of an operation mm -hmm. in order to make that diagnosis, particularly with more severe disease, um, we, we generally talk about deep endometriosis and superficial endometriosis. And, and what that means is superficial endometriosis is, is, is endometriosis just on the surface of organs, um, just affecting what we call the peritoneum, which is a kind of cling film-like covering that covers all the organs in the pelvis. Um, um, and deep endometriosis, which is endometriosis that um, sort of grows deeper into the organs. And, mm -hmm. and the accuracy of transvaginal ultrasound um, and MRI in diagnosing um, deep endometriosis is now very good, sort of 90, 92%. Um, um, so we are getting better at diagnosing endometriosis, is, is I think the case. And I mean, you, you will know far better than I, but actually patients who present um, and, and perhaps do have surgery 
eventually mm-hmm. to, to to diagnose the reason for the pelvic pain or or perhaps fertility um you, it's a spectrum isn't it of disease so people have perhaps just the odd spot of endometriosis they still mm-hmm. get labeled as having endometriosis but then at the other end of the spectrum you can have really quite um as you said they're deep endometriosis in, invading quite a few of the organs the bowel the ovaries the fallopian tubes this it, it's important probably to say isn't it that people who have endometriosis aren't all unable to have a baby um, no, no, but, absolutely. But in, in fact, most women with endometriosis will not have any problems getting mm. pregnant. It's just that there is an increase in fertility difficulties in women with endometriosis. Mm. Um, uh, there, there was a big study um, many years ago that, that looked at this. And um, it, although we think that endometriosis is present in about one in 10 women, if you looked inside the tummies of women who were struggling to get pregnant, about 50% of them had endometriosis. So that, that suggests that it is having an effect. And, and endometriosis obviously is an inflammatory condition. Can you just explain, I guess, to our listeners who, who might be think, want, trying to understand why it, it causes such problems? Why is it that 50% of people who are struggling to have a baby might have endometriosis? What's actually going on? What's, cause, what's, causing, what's actually happening in the pelvis that's causing the fertility issues? So, so there's a few things. I mean, the most simple one is that many women with endometriosis have pain and particularly pain during sex. So it may decrease the number of times that they have sex. And of course, if you decrease the number of times that you have sex, you're decreasing your chance of getting pregnant. And mm-hmm. that's, that's very sort of obvious, isn't it? Um, but when endometriosis grows inside the pelvis, as you said, it's an inflammatory condition and inflammation in the pelvis first of all causes scarring Um, and scarring may stick um, things like the tubes and the ovaries to places which they're not supposed to be stuck to and stops them from moving around in the way that they're supposed to move around Mm -hmm. um, and therefore stops that process of egg meeting sperm Um, and um, there's the other thing that you talked about again, which you were saying, it's an inflammatory process, um, which is the inflammation in the pelvis and the chemicals in the pelvis due to the inflammation may well be, you know, toxic or or not great for an egg. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that uh, many of my patients are surprised about when when I explain this to them is is that the egg is released from the ovary and it has to travel through the pelvis before it gets picked up by the fimbria, which are the sort of finger-like ends of the tube. So that egg has got to travel through that sort of potentially hostile environment um, before it goes to meet the sperm. And, and there's probably effects on the egg which decrease its chances of, of um, you know, forming an embryo and the embryo implanting and things like that. So those are the main reasons, I think. And of course, um, people can have really quite well quite significant endometriosis resulting in cysts on their ovaries um mm-hmm. where the egg, egg stores are um is there any way that we can be um, be looking at these um patients with pelvic pain with concerns about endometriosis earlier to try and prevent the the heartbreaking situation which i'm sure you know you will you will know as well as i do where patients mm. arrive and they say i've had years of painful periods and actually they then have a, a really quite depleted ovarian reserve um because it is inflammatory, it can affect the cortex of the ovary and and the and the ovaries themselves. Is there is there a better sort of are there plans afoot to try to sort of pick up these patients earlier, or is it just down to chance? 
oh, I'm not sure if there's any sort of official plans afoot. I mean, um, I guess there's a lot more awareness and education around fertility now. And um, as a fertility specialist yourself, you'll probably have noticed that we're seeing more and more women coming to sort of check out their fertility earlier on in life. Um, you know, very commonly seeing women in their late 20s, early 30s, you know, perhaps they've got busy careers and they're thinking, you know, time's not quite right at the moment, but I, I'm looking to the future and I am thinking that perhaps, you know, there could be a problem at some point. And I mm. want to make sure that right now things are things are fine. Um, people are getting, you know, getting together and starting to think about families later and later. And I think, you know, it's a good idea um, to think about doing that. And it, it may well be that, um, you know, at that point, um, you might pick up that somebody's ovarian reserve um, is not as great as it you might expect that to be at that point or you might pick up that they've got an endometrioma which is an endometriosis cyst on one of the ovaries which is you know which is the easiest thing to see on scan with mm. regards to endometriosis and um and then you know that might you know set in set in motion you know a whole sort of chain of investigations or or um you know change the way that somebody thinks about their fertility at that point I think you're right. I think education is is the cornerstone of getting getting patients to have increased awareness and knowing when to look for help. But um, let's say you're now in your teens and you've got heavy painful periods and you go and see your GP and they put you on the pill. Is is that enough? Should we be, um, you know, should you be doing that? Uh, or if you are, you actually potentially just dampening down a process which is then going to go on and continue to to lead to fertility problems because these pharmacological options that of course are the right way to start because you can't perform surgery on everybody um, to diagnose and treat endometriosis is that in itself perhaps masking a problem for for young patients we're talking about educating them should should, should that be the right the right process or should they be looking at more interval ultrasounds what's your view on this as, as a fertility doctor as well it's such a difficult one isn't it mm. because i like to ask difficult questions uh, on this thank podcast. you thank you I'm, uh, <laughs> um I think it's a really hard one. I think, I think the important thing would would be awareness. It's just that education, as you say. Um, you know, in an ideal world, perhaps we don't just try the pill or whatever it is, and then when the pain goes away, say, "Oh, great, the pain's gone away." You know, maybe we, you know, ideally do spend a bit more time with patients and and say to them, "Look, you're 18 now." You've got better on on the progesterone only pill. That's fantastic. But there are you know causes like endometriosis that might be there. And if your symptoms get worse, if you come off the pill in a few years' time, and you know your symptoms get bad again, then you know represent, think about it again. I, it's a difficult know, you, one, isn't it? It's... Yeah, and you said you said about serial ultrasounds. Well, you know most people with endometriosis will not have anything that anything. can be seen on on mm. ultrasound. And are are we in that situation? you know, making patients upset, nervous, worried Absolutely. about something that most likely is not going to affect them. Mm. And the other thing is, it's very difficult to predict who is going to have fertility issues. Mm. Endometriosis is a is a strange old beast. And, yeah. you know, some people have very little endometriosis and masses of symptoms. And some people have the most horrendous endometriosis and have been completely unaware of it and have had five kids. So mm. it, it's 
it's it's a really hard one. I guess what you're talking about is kind of like screening, isn't it? And I don't mm. think we're anywhere near a, no. a screening um, test for endometriosis, although people are working really, really hard to try and find, you know, biomarkers in the blood, which are, you know, chemicals in the blood that, that, that would diagnose endometriosis. But... Uh, we're not there yet. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a it's a really interesting area, isn't it? Because uh, you're right, it's it's such a mixed bag, and uh, as you say, you can you can have lots of children and have endometriosis, uh, or be incredibly unlucky and have endometriosis, and sadly not be able to conceive. Now, I mean, you're a surgeon, Ollie, so you you obviously mm. operate on patients with endometriosis mm. week in week out. What what mm. as a surgeon can you actually offer patients and do to try to optimize their fertility? So the, the first, of, first of all, it's about diagnosis, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So um, when we see, well, when I see patients with endometriosis, you know, the first question I ask in my head and the first question that I ask the patient is, um, you know, what is your priority here? Is your priority getting rid of your pain or improving your pain or is your priority fertility? Because the way that we manage patients will be different depending on what the what, what the answer to that question is and it's kind of the same when somebody comes to me and asks the question have I got endometriosis because if fertility is a priority for them at that point and their scan is normal then I'm far more likely to recommend doing a laparoscopy to have a look inside their pelvis to see if there's something there because even treating you know relatively mild or, or moderate endometriosis does seem to improve the chances of getting pregnant naturally. Um, so I guess that's the main place where, where surgery can be helpful in fertility. Mm -hmm. But th there's also a place for surgery in fertility with more severe disease. Um, sort of generally speaking, if a patient has severe disease, so lots of deep endometriosis, particularly if it's affecting the bowel and things, um, we would be much more ready to recommend IVF as a treatment. But in some of these patients, they require surgery first in order to improve their chances of success at IVF. So that's the other, that's the other end of the sort of scale where I get involved. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Having that patient who, uh, a woman that's, you know, you see in your clinic who's had lots of per painful periods for that throughout their life. And then they're, they're faced, you know, in their early 30s with uh, quite a depleted ovarian reserve and quite bad endometriosis. Mm. Um, you know, I'm sure you, this is a probably a far more regular occurrence for you than it is for me because, <laughs> um, you know, do, do less endometriosis work than you do. But it's, it's a... Um, it's a problem, isn't it? It's hard to know how to, to, to counsel those patients because the evidence isn't 100% in this area, is it? It can be difficult to know which way to turn. Do you have any kind of lines in the sand just out of interest for these patients who are have got really bad endometriosis, so sort of stage four, the worst type that you can have mm. in terms of surgical grading? But do, do, you, do you sort of, how do you approach that type of patient? So I think the, one of the reasons why it's a difficult question to answer is is it's so individual yeah um you know no endometriosis patient is the same um you know one of the reasons why i love it and it's fascinating is that every pelvis that you look into with endometriosis is different mm -hmm. um and you can have endometriosis in the bowel you can have endometriosis in the ovary and the tubes you have adenomyosis which is an endometriosis like condition in the muscle layer of the womb um and depending on where it is and 
you know how big a cyst is for example you know that that can affect um your decision about what to do so i think it's a very individualized thing and yeah it's it's a it's a really interesting process i think trying to make a decision with a woman based on their um priorities um as to what the best way to go for them is and and you're right you know the the research is is not clear there are no lines in the sand Mm -hmm. um and it's quite interesting that you know we used to have this sort of uh, relative line in the sand which was if you have severe disease and you're trying to get pregnant and you're not succeeding then you move to IVF and excision of the endometriosis um, you know does not improve your chances of getting pregnant significantly mm-hmm. but that's been slightly um, challenged or it's been challenged quite hard with the publication of um, a big meta-analysis last year which suggested that actually perhaps excision of severe endometriosis improves the chances of success at IVF mm-hmm. um, and there's um, you know a lot of talk around that publication at the moment some people you know think that there's some you know problems with um, the method which means that it, it should be ignored but I think most people are saying actually that's quite an interesting thing that should probably be revisited and, and, and perhaps changing the way that they do things slightly yeah it's definitely it's so important that we can kind of follow the evidence and that more and more research is funded and it's absolutely mm. critical to kind of making progress because you know both of us probably remember in our own practices certain add-ons and things in IVF that have been around for hmm. years and then they've been disproven gradually over yeah, over time gone, yeah. um so it, you know i think you're you, you know you're right to say that actually you know this is a a, a landscape to kind of keep an eye on because it, it, it certainly could change um you touched there i'm uh, pleased here you, you were talking about adenomyosis um mm. because that's a conversation that that we often have with our patients and i just wondered um because actually i find this is quite divisive between between uh, even the clinicians in terms of how we approach it mm. but obviously we do know that adenomyosis which is you described endometriosis in this sort of muscle wall um, of the womb can impact on on fertility mm. um, how do you approach uh, approach it what are your what's your feeling about the condition are there other grades of it because you can't remove it can you it's not it's not an easy one to treat um, it's not an easy one to treat um, I mean there are different kinds of adenomyosis that some people have a sort of diffuse adenomyosis and by that I mean they've sort of got adenomyosis throughout the womb mm-hmm and other people have more of what we call an adenomyoma, which is is like a, a lump of adenomyosis, if you like, in the womb. And there, there are procedures um, that can be done in patients who've got sort of one lump of adenomyosis. But they're very difficult and they're often not particularly successful mm. um, uh, for technical reasons, which we don't necessarily go into. But it, it, it's difficult to identify where the edge of the adenomyoma is. Mm. You're, ch- you're cutting out a big chunk of somebody's uterus and sewing it back together again. And how good is it going to be when you sew it back together again? So I think most people um, would uh, say that, you know, they'd save that kind of surgery for the absolute worst cases. Um and stick to more pharmacological kind of approaches, or, or do you not? What do you do with your patients that need IVF but had an, have adenomyosis? Um, which, um, well, I mean, I think I think we know from well, there's been no really good research, but that we know from quite a bit of research that adenomyosis probably does decrease the chances of success of implantation IVF, mm-hmm. um, and that 
the more severe it is, the more it affects it. What we don't know is what to do in that situation to try and improve things. Um, yeah. The the thing that people most regularly fall back on is the use of um, GNR8 analogs, things like um, Zolodex and things like that, which are um, medications that effectively turn off the ovaries temporarily um, and starve the adenomyosis or the endometriosis of um, hormones and they're, they're hormone driven conditions. Mm. So hopefully improve the adenomyosis, you know, calm it down. You know, we've talked about inflammation, perhaps decrease the inflammation in the hope that, you know, it improves the chances of success. But there's there's no good evidence for that. And uh, I generally don't start with that. Um, I would say if a patient has recurrent implantation failure, and by that I mean they've had lots of good quality embryos put back and they're not getting pregnant and they clearly have significant adenomyosis, then in that situation I might say, look, we've got nothing to lose really by giving you, mm. say, three months of GNRH analogues um, and, and trying again. Or very occasionally I've done it with a patient with, you know, really severe endometriosis, you know, really severe adenomyosis and, and they, you know, might have a poor ovarian reserve and they've got one precious embryo, you know, after a lot of, you know, struggle. Um, and, you know, you're thinking, is there anything we could possibly do, you know, to give this one embryo, which might be our one chance of a pregnancy, uh, you know, it's it's best shot and i've done it a few times with that but but generally i don't sort of treat it straight off the bat if yeah, that answers it's your a, question it's a difficult it's a very difficult um area because you're sort of straying into um as you say every patient is different and every patient has their unique characteristics whether it's their age their amh how many cycles they've done how many have been worked mm. or not worked and that's where Luckily, the expertise of, of people like yourself, Ollie, come into really helping patients work out the right plan. So you do have to mm. kind of, I like to say, go off piste, but you have to kind of almost look at what might be right for that individual. Um, I mean, we're moving into, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about the the surgery there, the surgical aspects of whether that may improve IVF outcomes. What's your gut instinct? I'm not asking you to sort of, you know, <laughs> commit <laughs> completely, but what's your gut? Mm. Do you feel pharmacology has a, a stronger role to play in terms of the build-up to IVF cycles for patients with this condition, or what do you think surgery is going to be the sort of solution to improving IVF outcomes in, in patients with significant endometriosis? I think it's going to be a combination of the two. Mm. Um, Good answer. It... <laughs> 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 totally sidestep it. No, no, no. I, I got you on I, that. No, go for it. Go ahead. Sorry, I, I interrupted I, you. No, not at all. Um, no, I, I do think it's going to be a combination of the two. Um, because, you know, as we've been saying, every patient is individual, you know, um, different people have got different problems. You know, I can't see that we're likely to find a pharmacological solution for a large endometrioma, for example. Mm. I can't see that we're going to suddenly find a tablet that's going to shrink a 12 centimetre endometrioma down to nothing. Um, but we may well not want to collect eggs from an endometrioma from a from an ovary with a large endometrioma because it, you know you you risk um, puncturing the endometrioma and, and causing an infection in the pelvis um, ovaries probably don't respond quite so well to stimulation if they've got large endometriomas in them mm -hmm. um, so 
there'll probably always be a role for surgery um, there. Um, and if we're talking specifically about IVF, it's a bit different, but talking about endometriosis in general, uh, you know, we may, you know, it would be fantastic if one day we found a, you know, a magic bullet for endometriosis that just, you know, melted it away. Mm. I think we're a long way away from that. But even if you melt the endometriosis away, is it going to affect the adhesions which uh, have already been caused? Probably not. So there'll probably be a role for surgery in, in treating those adhesions. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's going to be a combination of things, really. And, you know, it is now a combination of things, isn't it? Listen, it's been great to hear all your thoughts on this topic because it is a difficult topic. And we, you know, in your practice, you'll know the, the difficult decisions you have to make with patients about the right mm. path forwards. But, I mean, have you got any thoughts or, or sort of some, kind of summing up really some, 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 some tips as well for patients that who may be worried about whether they have the condition or, or perhaps know they've got the condition and aren't sure what to do next or, or perhaps had lots of cycles, that have, you know, in terms of fertility that's been difficult. What would be your sort of, what are your three top tips to people that are worried about their endometriosis in terms of optimizing their fertility and getting the best out of the decisions that they make? Um, so I think, I think the first thing is, is to ask the question. So, you know, in terms of, you know, have, has, have I got endometriosis as that's what's causing my problem? Then, you know, ask the question because, you know, some, you know, GPs, for example, have, you know, good, gynecological experience and they do know a bit about fertility but some don't know anything at all and it might just be that you going in and saying look I'm struggling to get pregnant could it be endometriosis makes them think oh well maybe um, and I know somebody who could answer that question for you and refer you to the correct person um, I think the question about patients with significant endometriosis struggling to get pregnant I, w I would say the number one thing is is make sure that you try and see um, you know somebody who has expertise in in that area um, you know most endometriosis surgeons will know a little bit about fertility and most fertility doctors will know a little bit about endometriosis but there are some people who know about endometriosis and fertility and it's it's probably really worth trying to hunt down someone like that and and yeah. and ask ask them the question well, listen, thanks, Holly, for your time. It's been great to have you with us and um, thanks, touching, you know, really sharing your knowledge on this important subject, which affects so many women going through their fertility struggles. Um, we will obviously link to you in the show notes. So if people want to ask you any questions through social media or, or through your own website, then hopefully they can find you and, 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 and bother you and tackle you on, on some no, endometriosis it'd questions. Nice but, but no, thanks for taking time to, um, to speak to us. It's been great having you. You're very welcome. Thanks, Ed. Well, it's been really good talking to Ollie there and hearing all about the ins and outs of uh, current thinking around endometriosis and the interventions that uh, he can offer and uh, as medical doctors, um, the options for patients who suffer with this really dreadful disease that has some um, quite life-changing effects, not only in day-to-day -day life, but of course, it can impact on fertility. It's been Endometriosis Week this month, and so I think it's really appropriate that this episode is, uh, is aired. We were um, delighted to chat to Ollie, and um, it, it became evident that this was really going to tie in nicely uh, with what people are talking about at the moment. So uh, I'm delighted that uh, we've been able to hear a bit from him. I hope you feel like you've learned a little bit. If you've got any questions for Ollie, you can find out a bit more about things in the show notes. Um, 
links to him and his um, his his websites if you've got any questions for him. Um, next time we're going to be looking at uh, metabolic control and um, polycystic ovaries, and uh, we're going to be speaking to an expert in the in this area. Um, so I'm quite looking forward to our next episode, which is uh, coming next month. So please uh, stick with us. Um, do stay and subscribe and listen and to share the podcast series with friends who you might think might benefit, who might be going through difficult times. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to Ollie. So thanks again for his time and I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. <laughs>